0: Every week, uh, we go to the Scriptures because it's there that the person and work of Jesus are most clearly revealed. Our sermon this week will be from First John chapter four, verses thirteen through twenty-one. But first, pray with me, Father, by Your Spirit, as we open Your Word this morning and hear it preached. God, open our hearts to hear, to receive, to be transformed by the redeeming work of your son. God, we thank you for this opportunity to hear from you this morning. And I pray that you would meet us here. You change our hearts, that we might trust you more and glorify you. We love you. We trust you. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 John chapter 5. I'm sorry. 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Mixed up. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. You may be seated.
1: Peace to be with you. Thank you. Good morning, Sojourn. Uh, my name is Dodds, I'm one of the pastors here. I'm very glad to be with you. This morning, today, we're continuing our sermon series through the epistle of 1 John. We are in our last two weeks, um, and I do trust that it has been a fruitful study and such a wonderful letter. It's been a a wonderful summer, a summer meal, as it were. So uh, Paul, the author of 1 Corinthians, wrote what is undoubtedly the Bible's most famous passage on love. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I become like sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it is not rude, it does not boast. These are pretty wonderful verses, memorable verses. But 1 John 4 might rival it. It's the great passage on love from the apostle who is most readily identified as the beloved apostle of Jesus. And so throughout these first four chapters that we've read in this letter, John has frequently exhorted his readers to love one another. As we've seen, love is the difference between darkness and light. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him, he writes. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. We've seen that love is the difference between wisdom and folly. It's the difference between our God and the devil. We've seen John say that the children of God and the children of the devil are known by their actions. God's children do righteousness and promote righteousness, and the children of the devil do not. And righteousness, in John's telling, is defined in terms of, of loving one's brothers and sisters in Christ. So maybe in summation, we could say it as straightforwardly as this. Hatred of our brothers and sisters puts us in the dark. It makes us unholy and foolish. God's commandment is that we trust in the name of Jesus and that we love one another. But John also speaks of God's love for us. See how great. See how How great a love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God, and such we are. This is a constant theme throughout John's epistle. In chapter 4, the noun and verb love is used 27 times. But more than that, John connects all aspects of love into a single intricate knot. He grounds the commandment to love one another in the nature of God himself. The reality is this. The Trinity is love. These aspects of love are all drawn together here in a way <clears throat> that is not found any, in any other part of the Bible. So this morning, again this way. So Paul concludes his great chapter on love, with now abide faith, hope, and love, these three. And John does something similar here. While he's concluding his teaching on love, he shows the relationship between love, faith, and victory. Because instead of using the word hope, he uses victory. So John could have said that what abides is faith, love, and victory, these three. We'll talk about victory again later, but that's where we'll pick up here in chapter 5. So let's, let's begin with our text again. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, that we love God and obey his commandments, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. So in this, in this closing portion of John's letter, we see the development of these central themes. Love for God, love for one another, being born of God, obedience to his commandments, and belief in Jesus as the Christ. But we begin this chapter with a surprising addition. A further sign of being born of God rests on the belief that Jesus is the Messiah. The word for believes here is the word pistis, and it means faith. Those who have faith in Jesus as the Messiah. So in the beginning of chapter four, John said that that the love of the brothers is a sign of being born of God. And here he adds that believing that Jesus is the Messiah is another sign of being born of God. Why is that important? John, John is, is saying to us that, that faith and love are inseparable. Perhaps you may believe that having faith in Jesus is all that's needed for living, or that, or that loving others can be done without believing that Jesus is the anointed one of God. Our world, it, it does try to separate love and faith, tell us that we can have one without the other, but John says here it's just impossible we can't. Genuine love for one another and genuine faith in Jesus as Messiah are dependent upon one another. And out of this, John begins talking about faith. He, he be, he's begun talking about faith, but now he moves into talking about love. And he connects our love for the Father with our love for our brothers and sisters. Those who love the Father love those born of the Father. And this is something that we should talk about a bit further because John has written similar things earlier in the letter, but he shifts the language here in a couple of ways that, that highlight different aspects of his message. The word translated born in verse 1 is, is the word for begotten, and it's, it's related to the word that he uses in his gospel to describe Jesus as the only begotten Son. In and through the work of the only begotten Son, Jesus. We, through faith, are all begotten, born, begotten of God. The last line of verse one literally reads, whoever loves the one who begets, loves the one begotten. So believing in Jesus as the Christ is a sign of being born of God, of being begotten of God, and loving the other begotten God of children is a sign that we love the Father. Maybe think of it just as simply as this. A child who loves his parents will also love his siblings. And a child who loves his siblings will also love his parents. In earlier chapters, John said that our love for one another is a sign of our love for God. And here he just reverses the statement. Our love for the Father is the sign of being born of God. As as commentator uh, Raymond Brown put it, one tests love for God by love for the brothers and sisters, and then tests love for brothers and sisters by the love of God. So both of these things are true, and they exist in this sort of circular, symbiotic relationship. When we're born of God, we love our siblings as an expression of our love of the Father. And we love the Father as an expression of loving our siblings. But this has very important implications, not just for a church family, but for all of our families at home. Our families of origin as well. This... John states it like an axiom. One cannot love the father without loving the children who bear a resemblance to their father. Now, looking out in this room, knowing some of you personally, and some of you even knowing my story, my family, there there are families where the children claim to have a deep affection for their parents, but they can't stand to be around one another. I know that some of you have come from those families. I know some of you have those families. And there are families where the children share close relationship as siblings, but they can't stand to be around their parents. I know there are stories like that in this room. John says that in God's family, that's just contrary to living. It's contrary to to the people of God. If we cannot love those who are stamped with the image of the Father, then we can't possibly love the Father either. But it works the other way too, as he says, you can't love your siblings without loving the Father. As members of this local church, we are, Sojourn, we are only brothers and sisters insofar as we are children of God And we are children of God only insofar as we believe in Jesus, the eternal Son of God. So if we don't believe in and confess Jesus as Son and Messiah, in a real way, our brotherhood and sisterhood, it just can't exist. It's that important for our unity. It's that important for our life together. According to the world's theory, people can get along quite well based upon our common share in all being part of just humanity. We're all human beings with human rights. We can live in harmony and love without any appeal to Jesus or the gospel. But a reality like that, a future like that, is impossible without the gospel. I mean, even if we think about the world prior to the advent of Jesus and his gospel, dominant groups often didn't consider people outside of their group fully human. Greeks and barbarians just dominated everyone and leveled everyone. Slavery in the West touted the three-fifths compromise. Our notion of human equality is truly unsustainable without a belief in Jesus. Consider our world, or even our immediate context in this city. If we factor God out, if we just factor him out as, uh, as creator of all men, women, and children, if we factor out Jesus as the one in whom we are all brothers and sisters, what basis is there for saying that we're all members of the same humanity? The last 100 years has seen as much war and slaughter as, as any century in history. So, and underneath the regime of humanity without God, we have seen countless groups slaughtering one another and even, even defective members of their own group. The former Soviet Union, China, Cambodia, Uganda, Afghanistan. In our own country, we can't even decide on when human life begins and when it's viable. Humanity is divided and at war with itself so there's going to be unity and harmony among peoples and races and tongues and tribes there must be something greater so much greater than common humanity to link us and hold us together there has to be a rebirth there has to be a new humanity we have to all be made new a group of brothers and sisters who are all begotten of the same Father, who all confess that Jesus is the begotten of the Father, who all welcome all brothers and sisters who profess Jesus. Without that, there really is no basis for the unity of human race. We'll keep changing the definition of unity. We always have. Our common humanity is insufficient for harmony among peoples, but what we need is both the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of Christ, where where we are united not only by a common father, but united to him through an elder brother, a son of God. So there's also this. John goes on here, he says, that loving God and loving the children of God means keeping his commandments. Chapter five, verse two. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. When John talks about what it means to live the Christian life day to day, he describes it in terms of faith, love, and obedience. Obedience to God's commandments. He describes love as a matter of doing, of executing God's commandments. For John, love and obedience are, are not opposites. They're they're just as intimately connected as love and faith. As Jesus Himself said, If you if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And John adds, as Jesus himself did, that God's commandments are not burdensome. Jesus, as a master, as our master, is a kind master who does not weigh us down with his commands. I mean, in our context here today, that's what some of the Jews were doing to other brothers and sisters in this context. They were heaping extra-biblical commands on their beloved siblings and oppressing them. See, love without attention and allegiance to God's commandments can easily collapse into mere emotion and affirmation. We just turn love into something that we feel. We'll end up doing what seems most humanly loving rather than what God says we should do. And obedience without a sincere and abiding desire for the good of our brothers and sisters can lead us to crush fellow family members. to turn obedience into slavery. The law should be infused with and motivated by love, and love expresses itself in keeping God's commandments. The entire law is fulfilled through loving God and loving others. That's what Jesus did when he came. He fulfilled the entire law, loving God and loving as brothers and sisters. So maybe what does this look like? What is it, maybe just give a couple of examples. I want you to talk about this in your, in your parishes at some point, just talking about this in particular, like, what does it mean in this context? What could it look like to love one another by obeying commandments of God, by obeying the commandments of God? I think we have a lot of answers, but let's just talk about two. What does it mean to love when you hear a rumor about a brother or sister's sin? It means you don't become a tale-bearer. You confront them in their sin if it's necessary, but you do not spread rumors, and you do not slander a sibling. It's not unloving, That to slander is not unloving because it's mean. It's unloving because it breaks God's commandments. What does it mean to love your employees if if you're a manager or you run a business? The law says you're responsible to make sure that they're paid, that they get a Sabbath day, that they get a day of rest. Brothers and sisters, employers and employees, love one another by keeping the commandments of Jesus. The law was always meant to be fulfilled in love. And (laughs) the commandments of God are not burdensome. Now this doesn't mean that we don't recoil from God's commandments in our sinfulness or resist them out of fear of, of coming out into the light. But when we actually obey the commandments of God, we discover that far from weighing us down, that the yoke of Christ is easy and his burden is light. His commandments set us free. In other words, God's commandments are not oppressive. In our world's history, there, there have been many nations, organizations, and people with oppressive with oppressive laws. But let's think about let's think about one one commandment that our Father gives us that, that that we really could sink our teeth into in this idea of it's not burdensome. And we'll we'll work backwards here. Our world really doesn't know what to do with sin, especially grievous sin cancel culture is the great absolver it seems the great judge but its law is oppressive and long lasting people's pasts their words their deeds their omissions they come back to determine their future our world says that you can that you could do enough to earn a place with god it just needs to be enough <laughs> And so we have people going to their graves with their, with their fingers crossed, hoping that they did enough. That, that's oppressive, that's oppression. But God commands us to confess our sin, not to hide it or wear it forever. Like just think about that for a moment, what it is to be commanded to confess. Doesn't it feel more like an invitation? Don't be burdened by the world's expectation. Don't be burdened by that. Come. It invites the whole world to come and deal with their sin. Come here. See it forgiven. See it come into the light. See the grace of God run into every crack and cranny to cover and to heal and to restore Think about the commandment to forgive one another. Isn't that a wonderful thing that God is the debt canceller and he makes us all little debt cancellers? And guess what? Every bit of forgiveness that we give brokered by him. We are not the great forgiver, he is the great forgiver. But think about that commandment. We are actually, he unburdens us and he sends us to unburden each other. He sends us to unburden the world. That commandment is not burdensome. God is the giver of rest. What does it mean to be forgiven? It means you can rest. What does it mean to confess and know you are forgiven? (sighs) I can rest. Let's keep reading. Verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? John is talking about our results, the results of our faith in love. It is a love in faith and a faith in love that has victory over the world. The the world is organized around the hatred of Cain, around the jealousy of Cain but we have we can be confident that our love will triumph over such a world that it will actually recenter the world not around the hatred of Cain but around the love of Christ the world denies that Jesus is begotten of God but we can be confident that eventually every knee will bow every tongue will confess that Jesus is king that he is lord But it's a good question to ask, what, uh, sweetheart, what, uh, it's an important question to ask, how does this work? How, how does our faith overcome the world? It's, it's very important, this, firstly, it's very important to note this, that John is not talking, he's talking about victory, he's not talking about Endurance. The word overcome is built from the same root word as victory. So, everywhere you see overcome in those verses, it's just the word victory. It's a lot of victory in those verses. But John doesn't want us to endure. He doesn't want us to just survive. He doesn't want us to just slog through. He says that we are going to triumph, that our faith does triumph. Jesus doesn't want us to learn to live with our, with our sin. He, he wants us to triumph over it. He doesn't want us to succumb to the world and, its, and, and, and what it says forgiveness really looks like. No, he wants us to triumph over it. But also the faith that John is talking about is very specific, and this is really important. It's not general faith in God. That's not the faith that overcomes. It's not just a general faith in God or a self-referential faith in in our faith. Does that make sense? Sometimes what we what we do is we self-referentialize and we and we say, if I can believe that I really believe, then that means I believe. But that just ends with us. That's not the faith that overcomes. John John isn't talking about the strength of of faith per se or or the importance of believing something no matter what. He says that the faith that overcomes the world, the faith that triumphs is this, the belief that Jesus is the Christ, the belief that Jesus is the Son of God. Christ, the words Christ and Son of God, these are royal titles. These are titles of a king. Christ means anointed one. It refers to Jesus as the one anointed with the Spirit, as a priest, as a king, as a prophet. And Son of God in the Bible refers to Adam. It refers to Israel and to the Davidic king as as this representative head of, of Israel. But here it means confession that Jesus is the king and Lord of the world. That is the faith that overcomes I believe that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. I have faith in the king that is now installed at his father's right hand. If we believe that, we overcome the world. You've, see, you've seen this movie a hundred times. Because we... We look around this world and we say, okay, he's King of Kings. He's Lord of Lords. But I see a lot of evidence that that's not completely true. It doesn't look like that's what's exactly happening all the time. But you've seen the movie a hundred times. Harry Potter, James Bond, Lord of the Rings, the Marvel series. The hero is captured by the villain who all of a sudden seems to hold all the cards. He thinks he's triumphed, he celebrates, he monologues the success of his plans, he twirls his mustache. (laughs) But the hero knows something, he knows that the cavalry's coming. He knows that he's already, or he knows that he's already unloaded the villain's gun, or that the infinity stones have been removed. The villain knows none of this, and when the hero finally escapes, the villain is defeated and he cowers in disbelief. Sojourn, this is our position as Christians. The world, the world may hate us, the world may tell lies about us, the, the devil will attack us with everything that he has and he may have seemed to win in so many ways, but we know something that the world doesn't know. We know that there are resources for triumph that it knows nothing about. And we're confident that be it sooner or later, rescue is coming, rescue has come. We know that our emperor from heaven is coming and that gives us confidence amidst so much that seems uncertain. But suppose the villain pulls the trigger of a loaded gun. What if Thanos gets to snap his fingers the second time? What if Sauron gets the ring back? The Empire crushes the rebellion. What? What then? Where's the triumph there? And this is where the specific faith that John talks about come into comes into play, because he's talking about faith in Christ, Jesus, the Son of God, who was not only eternally begotten by the Father, but begotten from the dead. By the power of the Spirit. See, Jesus didn't triumph by escaping death, by pulling himself down from the cross. He didn't gain victory by running away when the soldiers came to Gethsemane. His victory gained the victory by triumphing over death. He gained victory by being the firstborn from the dead. This is the kind of overcoming that John has in mind when he uses the word in the book of Revelation, which he also wrote. In chapter 12, verse 11, he writes this, and they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of the testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. They overcame through death as Jesus did because they knew that even when the villain pulled the trigger or lowered them into the pool of sharks, that triumph had already come and that it is still coming. Sooner or later, it's coming. And so, Jim, what that means for us today is it means that that nothing the enemy does will harm us. The world and its lusts and its prides, by, by the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and impartation of the Holy Spirit, this has no power over us. We have a king. The world and the flesh and the devil can do their worst, but they can't have victory. They can't. They've already lost, and the king has already been put on God's holy hill. You go read Psalm 2. That's what's happened. The one who sits in the heavens laughs. I've set my king on my hill. The world may lie about us, but we know that Jesus is going to judge the world in the end and vindicate his people, st- stop the mouth of the accuser, and reveal the truth in full. And even, and even in history... Our, our death will be the seed that goes into the ground and bears much fruit just like Jesus did they can stretch us out on the cross but we have learned the secret of life that the cross is the gateway to new life that death will be swallowed up by victory and whatever might look like defeat, death, failure it isn't in Christ it never is no, not forever, not for long for this is the victory that gains victory over the world. Sojourn, the Spirit of God lives within you. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the King. Let's love the Father together. Let's love one another as siblings. Let's obey his commandments and love the Father and love one another as we do. Burdens will be lifted. Neighbors will be welcomed. They'll see that the love of the Father is real, that the love of his siblings, his children is real. And we'll be able to unburden so many because there's room. Please pray with me. our holy and gracious Father. Lord, we love you. Jesus, we love you. Holy Spirit, we love you. Oh Lord, empower us by your Spirit. Strengthen us by your Spirit to love one another. What is your self-giving love has washed over all of us May we we be empowered by your spirit to take, to proclaim that self-giving love to others. To give it to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ because we get to share in this inheritance. Father, please have your way with sojourn in this way. Make us a body that loves you, that loves each other, that believes Jesus is king, and that obeys your commandments all in love might hope for the world and love the world. We need you. We need you. Please, please help us, we pray. We ask it in your name. Amen.